Hey, and welcome back to the State of Play podcast. This is episode 15. Uh, I'm your co-host, uh, Pet Berisha. You can follow me on Twitter at P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A. I'm joined, as usual, by the great Matt Santangelo over in New Jersey. How are you doing, Matt? Doing pretty well. Uh, of course, another recording, another meal on victory. So I, I can't complain there. We're climbing up the table, which we'll, uh, we'll get into with our next guest. And another Arsenal victory. Usually it's kind of like Arsenal win or Milan win. Now yeah, it's yeah, yeah. at the same time. Big victories for both. But we're not alone, are we? Uh, it's probably high time we introduce our guest. Uh, a very special guest, Marco from uh, IFTV. How you doing, man? Yo, guys, thank you for having me on, man. I'm excited to do some talking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, why don't you give us a bit more of a background about yourself or not us to the listeners? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, Marco, Marco Messina. Uh, I run IFTV, Italian Football TV, along with uh, my buddy Mike Cantaris. Uh, we're basically creating content around Italian football uh, in English, you know, YouTube, podcast, Instagram, all over the place. We're just trying to make, you know, Serie A relevant to a lot of young kids. So, uh, first of all, I want to say that's awesome by you guys uh, shedding some love, creating more content. And, you know, the more that everybody's creating content around Serie I know you guys do everything. Uh, it's super dope. So my uh, my hat's my hat's off to you guys. Thank you very much, man. And and you guys do some awesome stuff. Check them out on YouTube, especially. You guys have you've got pulled in some really big interviews, haven't you? Uh, do you want to mention any? Yeah, yeah. My favorite one is um is Luis Muriel when he was on Sampdoria. <laughs> that that interview was sick. And um, you know, it's a different style. You know, we're not going in there and trying to like you know like what the usual newspapers do and and get a, a get a headline and then swap it around. And that was one of the things like Muriel told us when uh, when we interviewed him. He's like, the thing I respected about you guys is you just went in there you had some fun we brought him some balloons because it was like his kid's birthday that day or the day before and he and he drove us home afterwards so it was pretty dope uh you know we got del piero on we had patrick chic um jovinko we got a few guys so it's been a good run but uh only the beginning awesome well yeah if you guys have been living under a rock or you're just not a you know serial fan until now go check out some of their content it's awesome but you know usually we pick the topics and we kind of run with it me and matt just kind of riff off each other but usually when we get a big guest like yourself we get quite a few questions in and, and the first one was from jeff and he just kind of went wtf is going on with roma at the moment um where do we start guys is it do we start with monkey do we start with uh, the change of manager um players underperforming where where do we start on this one yeah, yo, this is this is an interesting one. And you know, my dad, my dad who's on a podcast with us, he he grew up as a Roma fan. So I've been talking to him a lot about it and we both have the same feeling, which is just I understand, you know, to Jeff, you know, they sacked Di Francesco, Sebio Di Francesco, they parted ways with Monchi, um, you know, guys that they said they had a long term vision with, that they had um a project with. To be honest with you, I think that while Di Francesco and Monchi are to blame, of course, and and let let's take Di Francesco first, right? We'll we'll take the coach first since he was sacked first. Um, I don't think that the that the full blame can be on the coach, just because uh, the the for the the attitude of the team against Porto, I will say, was horrible. It was very bad that you know it was just hold on for dear life so that Porto doesn't score and let's not go out there and score, which is just unacceptable in Champions League and for a team like Roma. But at the same time, your expectations of a team like Roma need to be matched by what you invest in a club and the actions that you take on a transfer market. So as much as I love Palotta, and I really do, I I respect the man, you know, he's an inspiration to me, you know, being an Italian-American and being so successful. But at the same time, there needs to be 
um, some blame on the management and, and the guys up top because in this summer, you sell Allison, you sell Nangolan, you sell Strutman, you sell uh, Help Me Out with whoever else I'm missing. Those are three key players that helped you in that comeback against Barcelona and helped you qualify for the Champions League for how many years in a row. You sell them and you replace them with guys who are not as adequate or or have as much experience for a younger team. And that's okay, right? But then you have to understand that the expectations are going to be based off of that if you're trying to build for the future and trying to build for the young team. So I think that most of the blame goes on that and that sacking Di Francesco was more of like a scapegoat. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but that's what I think. I, I agree with a lot of what you said, Marco. I, I feel that, and I've been talking to other Roma fans on Twitter and my good friend Wayne, who I know Marco has, um, you know, have, has uh, bumped into quite a bit in uh, New York and, Shout out and Wayne. New Jersey. Love Wayne. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he, I've known him since I was six, seven years old. And, you know, we both grew up obviously loving uh, Calcio. And we I talked about this uh, with him a couple, couple months ago saying, you know, when you finish top three consistently each year, you're trying to go again a new brand new stadium. You're trying to be quote unquote self sufficient and kind of be along the likes of like a Juve who own their own stadium, the big brand. They have the great social media presence. You got these great big stars, but at some point the fans and the the wide uh, uh, time football audience they're gonna kind of get a little bit upset and kind of question what the vision is, what the what the aspirations are of the club. Is it just to consistently finish third, fourth, and not compete for silverware? Because if that's the case, then Juve are going to be very comfortable winning the title each and every year. There's got to be teams that you have to press on and challenge Juve. Uh, obviously, when Milan won the Scudetto, and then that second year, Juve came and knocked them off. And really, since then, it's been all Juve, and a credit to them for doing so. But you can see the necessary steps they made to continuously build, build, build. And, of course, uh, continue, continuously win the league, become a powerhouse back in Europe, and eventually lure in a big-time talent like Cristiano Ronaldo, which is never easy. So, for me, if I'm looking at Roma's situation, the thing that disappointed me the most was the fact that, yes, I understand that they kind of had to sell players to certain degrees and obviously make sure everything balanced out with financial fair play. But at some point, your fans and your, your, the expectation is is that you have to continuously chase things. Okay, what's the next step, right? If you look at Milan's, if you ask any type of Milan fan or Inter fan, it was to qualify the, for the Champions League. Okay, now it's to consistently stay there. Okay, now it's now it's the challenge for challenge Juve for the title. There's got to be a, a three to five year plan and each year make progress. And for me, I saw Roma kind of just lingering. They were kind of content with the status quo. And when you consistently sell stars year in and year out, you, eventually something's got to give. Eventually it's not going to work out like it did in the previous year where, you know, they sold Salah, they made a semifinal run. Now you sold Alisson, one of the best goalkeepers in the world. And now you're taking a massive step back. And now really it's all been blowing up. So that's the thing I got to look at with Roma's situation is, is where are they trying to head? Where are they, what, what are their goals? What are their objectives with this club? And I think that's the only thing, the only really the person who can answer that is Pelota at this point. Yeah, I think that me coming at this from an outsider's perspective, as an Arsenal fan, I've obviously paid really close attention to this because it's quite likely or it looks likely that Monkey's going to arrive at the Emirates in July, right? And I saw a lot of people tweeting about how, you know, um, 
kind of slandering some of his signings. And I feel like, I don't know about you guys, uh, you've mentioned, I think I've seen you, especially Matt, tweet about, um, you know, some of the mishaps that Monkey's had. And maybe I'm being a sympathist here, but is there a bit of revisionism here? I mean, Steven and Zonzi this time last season was kind of bossing a Europa League tie in both legs against Manchester United. At Old Trafford, he was the man of the match. They bought him for a fee that they basically sold Kevin Strootman for. Um, so, I, I don't know. I think there's there's two sides to this. Has Monkey made like are all of his decisions? Have they all been good? Absolutely not. Let me, let me say this. I, I I do think you can. There are some uh, parallels between what Monkey did and Roma did last summer to what Milan did a couple mm, summers mm, ago. Mm. It was it, they bought a ton of new players, and at that, at some point, the law of averages kicks in. Mm. Not all of them are going to be successful additions. Some are going to be a little bit better than others. When I looked at Roma's transfer approach last year. There were a lot of players I did like. Um, Brian Cristante, former Milan youth product, he had a great year at Atalanta scoring goals, uh, a really good midfielder, young, and it kind of fit the mold of what Roma were trying to do because that midfield for, for many years with De Rossi and Strutman either getting very old or very injury prone. So to get some fresh new legs in there, I understood that obviously Pellegrini is a big key piece as well. And I like the Nazonzi edition, as you just mentioned. Um but there were certain certain additions where you looked at and you're saying defensively, like, what are they doing? I think Maracano, like, you, you're selling yeah. Rudiger, you're, you're, you're getting rid of Allison, you're replacing him with Olsen. I understand Olsen had a good World Cup, I get that. But your fans, you can't sell that to your fans saying, we're going to keep selling stars and we're not going to adequately replace them. Uh, Kluvert's a nice addition. I'm not saying anything against that. A couple summers ago, Chingis Under was a fantastic addition, and they're going to sell him for a profit. There's no question about that. But when you look at the additions they made, you don't look at them and think these are move are all of them are going to be a move the needle type player for them. And again, a guy like Cristante, if they he doesn't really have much more value than what he has now, in my opinion, at least. I don't know if, if Marco would agree because statistically and, and historically, Italians don't sell that well outside of Italy. So if you're get a, if you got a guy like Cristante who they paid around twenty five to thirty for, and he doesn't su- uh, successfully fit in to what Roma are looking to do, whether it been under Di Francesco, Ranieri, or whoever their manager becomes next, you're really going to be taking a haircut on him, or you're going to have to kind of hope that he kind of turns it around. So again, for Roma to make what I was looking for Roma to do last summer, and again, of course, I don't know their whole financial situation uh, better than uh, the guys at the top. But you know they sold. They kind of gutted that 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 team that made such a great magical run, and that made people believe in Roma and made people believe in Italian football in the Champions League. And you took a massive step back, and 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 that's what kind of frustrated me. And you know, obviously, you can talk about even Napoli in a certain situation as well. Get rid of, getting rid of Jorginho. Um, you know, obviously, Maurizio sorry went to Chelsea. You know, they're a great team. I'm not taking anything against them, but at some point, as a Calcio fan. And, you know, Marco would agree with me on this. Someone's got to challenge Juve because the more clubs that can challenge Juve, the more it's going to be competitive and the more depth that uh, Serie A is going to have. So for me, again, Roma, it's just a kind of one of those cases where we really don't know what's going to happen next with them. Maybe they regress to take a step back. Um, I don't know what manager they're going to look for long term. Maybe Ranieri does a good job and he gets the job full, uh, full time. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of a weird situation. And I think Roma fans are really on edge. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think to take a look at, at two sides of the spectrum on this one, right? So number one, you know, we're talking about Monchi. Did he do well? Did he not do well? I think that if we look at the facts and we look at Pastore, um, Karsdorp, and Sheik, that's 90 million right there. 
that they spent, right? And I'm okay with you selling Alisson for, for $70 million, right? With bonuses, that's fine. But you have to adequately replace them. And those three signings for $90 million don't look too good right now. And I don't know if that's DeFrancesco who said, listen, get me these three players. Or is that Mochi who says, no, these three players are good enough where you are. And I think the second piece to this is that as a Roma fan, right? If you take a look as a Roma fan, you have to put yourself in this position. A few years ago, you were challenging for the Scudetto. You were the, the second place team to Juve. I remember I went to the Juventus Stadium and I watched Juve Roma, and that was the game to determine who was going to help win the Scudetto, who was going to go on to win the Scudetto. And since that time, you've seen Napoli hop over you. For, hop over you. Napoli is a second-place team. And now you're starting to see both Milan and Inter start looking better, and you're looking at yourselves like, guys, not only are we not going to go for a Scudetto, are we going to qualify for a Champions League? And that goes down to the management, that goes down to the project, that goes down to whoever you hire to put in this place of continually going downhill for a few years. And again, I'm okay with that. If you're signing young players, you're like, listen, we're going to compete in five years because we're going to get all these young guys, our financials are going to be good, boom. But it makes no sense to then sack Di Francesco if that's part of your plan. Yeah, I think uh, this one is going to be something that rumbles on for, for quite a long time, especially if, you know, Ranieri maybe doesn't get it right. Uh, what are your thoughts, Marco, as an Arsenal fan? I'd love to know on uh, Monkey potentially linking up with Unai Emery again. I mean, to be honest with you, I feel like I didn't get a fair a fair view of Monchi because um, I met him in person and he was a wonderful guy. I mean, he had, he, no, seriously, he had such charisma. He was so kind to everyone that he interacted with. You know, I was really watching him. And there was, this was the first season at Roma. And I was I was pretty impressed with that. And, and I liked it. I felt a good sign. And I got a little bit, you know, all the Roma fans were messaging me. This guy's good. This guy's a real deal. But, you know, if we look at the results and it's, it's again, it's very hard to say whose decision was it to sign these players? Because as fans, we don't really know what's going on into the locker room, even if we do think we do. I think that at Sevilla, his results spoke for themselves. But at Roma, there's a lot of question marks around there. And I'm very interested to know if Monchi was the one who said, listen, I'm out, or if Roma were just like, we're done with this. We we don't like what you've done, and uh, and you got to go. Because I've seen Roma fans call Monchi a coward, and I've seen others say, Palotta, you should believe in his project. So it's too hard to determine. And to give a fair evaluation, I wouldn't be able to say. Yeah, I think Marco touched on it on it quite well. I think we mean Marco were at that same game, if I'm correct, where Monkey was in the uh, walking by us in the mix zone. I think that was uh, Bread Bull Arena when they were in the States a couple summers ago, maybe a month after he arrived. Um, and everything he said about Monkey was true. You know, the charisma, the uh, the passion, you know, the excitement around his name coming to a club at Roma, given his reputation in Spain and what he was able to accomplish at Sevilla, winning all those uh, Europa League trophies. But I think, again, it's, it's so difficult to um, look at every single move and really magnify everything to the point where, oh, he didn't get this one right. He didn't get that one right. You know, you could even say that in, in many ways compared to what uh, Mirabelli did at Milan, right? You know, people kind of made fun of it and, and, and deemed his um, his job in the market as a, as a failure. But if you look at some of the guys he did bring in, you know, Musacchio, Rodriguez, um, you know, a couple of different players, Abelia, Kessia, he, he brought in quite a bit of talent that's really uh, helping Milan have a foundation as a club right now. So it wasn't all complete failure for him. And I think you can look at the same thing again with Monkey, getting back to what I said previously about the law of averages. When you bring in that many new guys in a, one summer, 
not all of them are going to click. Karsdorp was injured. You have, uh, you know, Zorik or, or Koric, that, that Croatian kid who, who came in with a good reputation. We haven't really got to see much of him. But it's it's funny, too, because everyone looked at Roma and what they did with the whole Niangolan sale, right? Oh, you sold one of our top, one of the top midfielders in Serie A for the past, what, four years? And you got 20 million plus a kid who probably won't play this year. Now it's looking like a steal, right? So it's easy to say after the fact, oh, this wasn't good, that wasn't good, this wasn't good. I think there's certain players that Monkey did bring in that you can kind of look and say, you know, maybe year one, it's going to be a little bit of a struggle. But year two, year three, these players could be pivotal pieces and fundamental to what Roma is trying to accomplish. So I, I'm not going to completely say it's all been all Monkey or it's been all Di Francesco or Pelota. I think it was a lot of collective things and maybe it just wasn't a right fit. You know, I think you it's, it's easy to look after the fact when the results aren't there or certain players aren't, you know, producing to say, see, this was, this was not a good appointment or it's, it's, everyone likes to point blame after the fact, but when they're in the, when things are going well, it's sometimes tough for people to give credit for it, you know? So I, I just think, again, it just goes to show you, we talked about it on our previous episode, uh, Petrit, where the value and the, um, the importance and significance of a sporting director really is going to skyrocket over the next couple years uh but because we're seeing how big of an influence it can have right if in a matter of months when milan brought in leonardo look at the guys he's been able to bring in who have played huge roles into what milan uh could do this year you know uh piontek paqueta without getting leonardo in there it's hard to argue and really hard to understand or comprehend where Milan would be this season. So it just goes to show you again, I think it maybe it wasn't a perfect match, but if you're looking at the sporting director position, it obviously has a, that much more of an impact now than it probably ever has because you can look at the managers because there's the guy that is training with these players and trying to get the best out of them. But if these sporting directors can't wheel and deal and make the proper additions each summer and obviously you know um, know who who should be sold and who shouldn't it becomes a delicate uh, line to toe so um, it's going to be interesting to monitor how Roma um, you know kind of move on from from uh, the monkey and Di Francesco experiment um, I will say this though I think again we, we see what you know with the exception of Juve there's been a couple a lot of over a lot of um, you know overturn and a lot of uh overhaul with a lot of these top clubs in Serie A, which just goes to show you again how well-oiled of a machine, all things considered, uh, Juve have been for the better part of uh, eight, nine years. Yeah, I certainly think it's going to be an interesting one to keep an eye on, especially with Ranieri coming back in. It felt definitely like the players were playing under a grey cloud, especially in those two um, uh, Champions League ties. I mean, even in the first leg, Roma didn't play particularly well. They were bailed out by, um, you know, one moment of brilliance from Zaniolo and then another tap-in. It's it is just going to be fascinating to see how it, whether or not Ranieri can lift them and create a feel good factor like he did at, at Leicester and you know not so successfully at Fulham recently. But he, he has the you know it's the tinker man at the end of the day. You never know what he could do. Uh, <laughs> we, we got another question here from Maria, staying in um, Syria. What, what do you guys think uh, Juventus will look like in terms of their lineup against Atletico Madrid in the second leg? Yeah, so um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm going to try to not get too mad right now, right? <laughs> I, I saw the newspaper today, and they're saying a three-five-two from Juventus, a formation I haven't seen Juventus play in uh, this entire season. Um, I'm very confused by this team. I, I honestly, I don't know what to expect, just because there's so many question marks around a few players. Also, Douglas Costa, if he's going to be back, if he's not going to be back, 
Um, I think he's expected to be on the bench, but he's probably not going to be starting. Um, I don't know what to look. I don't know. I don't know what to think about who's going to start. They're saying Casares, Chiellini, and Bonucci in the back. Doesn't make any sense to me, but Allegri's supposed to know best, right? Yeah, I think uh, that there was a period, though, wasn't there, with Juventus? Um, I'm not sure if it was last season, at the beginning of last season, where three at the back was heavily used, right? Well, a few years ago, it was brought in by Conte, but he also had, you know, Barzai, Bonucci, and Chiellini, who were at the top, you know, as center backs. That was a different time. And also, Conte, he couldn't start out with the 3-5-2. I was at Juventus's trainings when, um, when Juventus first got Conte, and uh, when he was switching to that, a 3-5-2 takes time to learn. The left wing, the left wing back and the right wing back, that is one of the hardest positions to play in full in football when you play a 3-5-2. It's so, so difficult. Um, I'm going to look like an idiot if we look back and then Juventus do great with 3-5-2, but I'm fine with that just because to me it's very questionable. But at the same time, Juventus don't have much to lose because this game does not look like there's a lot of bright lights for Juve and, and for their opportunities to go through because Atletico is just one of those teams that they live. They love this. They they love to defend the two-goal lead. Let's be honest. This is their their bread and butter. If they were if it was the opposite, if they were losing 2-0, they would be more upset, you know? Like they love to defend. So I think that they're gonna be the hardest team to break down and I think no matter what lineup Juventus get with the way, I think the attitude of the players, I always say this, you know, people talk about formations and like, oh, if you just switched this guy over here and move there. And while yes, the details do matter, the attitude of the players is much more important than the formation. And the attitude of the players has consistently and continuously gotten worse for Juventus. So I think that that's more of the storyline rather than the formation that Juventus is going to play is, is the attitude going to be there? Is it going to be that fighting Juventus who was able to come back against Real Madrid last year? Or is it going to be the Juventus against Atalanta and against Atletico Madrid where there's no hope and, and the, the midfield is completely dominated? I don't know. And, and again, even against, you know, in, in the past, what, month, month and a half, some of the, the performances as a whole or maybe the results have kind of somewhat disguised or masked um, the the uh, below below average performances that Juve have had, of course, you know I think we talked about on the previous episode, me and Petrit, that performance against Parma up three one at home. That's that should be done and dusted. That's that's a a no brainer. And obviously, it's not going to you know come up in in the standings because they have such a big lead. But you started to see you know within about a month month and a half ago, uh, some of the wheels fall off. You know certain things starting to go wrong. And um, I just getting back to this game, if uh, I don't think Allegri is going to be, um, you know, let's for lack of a better term, idiotic enough to go at Dechio over Cancelo again. But I mean, again, to your point, like, yes, you can look at the formations, you can look at the selections, we can look at all those certain things, but it's got to come down to the mentality. And we saw that in the last uh, Champions League, where the first leg against Real Madrid, it would, they were flat, they were uninspired. And then that second leg, they had no problem going to the Bernabeu, um, and, and and really pushing Real Madrid to the limits and nearly kind of pulling it off. So uh, we know that Juve is capable of doing it, but it's a matter of, again, if it's to the point where they can do it multiple years in a row. I will say this, having a guy like Ronaldo this time around, I, 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 get, I have a feeling, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it wouldn't surprise me if uh, Juventus did overturn this. I think that Godin is not 100% in this game, and having a guy like Ronaldo who is capable of carrying a team in a short, uh, you know, uh, short tournament, if you will, like this, you know, a couple legs here and there. Um, he got hot 
second half last year for Real Madrid, he led them to a Champions League trophy despite a really slow first half. So I think, again, look for Ronaldo. I think it's cliche to say look for Ronaldo because everyone is. But I think, again, when you have a player like that, a champion who's done it before against this team in that uh, in at home, they're going to be able to do this. I, I think, again, they're going to really do need Ronaldo to do a lot of the heavy lifting. But again, it's got to be collective effort. The mentality's got to be there. And I think it really comes down to whether or not Allegri can get that out of him. And we saw that uh, after the game, uh, he he kind of raised his five fingers, saying, "I've I've been here before, right? I've I've won five Champions Leagues. Anyone who who criticizes me, I've I've been here and done this. So just let me play my game." Matt Matt and I spoke a lot about the midfield battle in the last game. Marco, I'm really interested to get your point of view on kind of Juventus's mid- midfield currently and whether or not it's good enough to actually compete at this level in the Champions League. What what midfield? <laughs> I'm be- I'm being so serious. Literally, like Juventus don't have a, a a midfield to to compete. I mean, without Pjanic, and this has been of subpar to say to put it in a nice way. Pjanic, there's no midfield. I mean, Emre Can, um, Bentancur, Kedira, not good enough. Like this is a, a a midfield of Juventus where in the final a few years ago when Juventus went up against Barcelona, that was to me, one of the best midfield, midfields in the world, where you had Marquisio, Pogba, um, Vidal, and Pirlo, where that was the dominating force. You know, Juventus' back line was unbelievable. You had Buffon, Barzai, Bonucci, Chiellini, unbelievable. You had a midfield who would dominate play. And in the attack would be the problem. And everyone would say, ah, oh, you know, Juventus, they need that top player. They need that top player for the Champions League. And I was there. And now you got that top player. Like Matt said, you got that Ronaldo who will make the difference in the details. But you also lost your midfield. And when you don't have a midfield in Europe, this is what happens. And Juventus are getting rightly so. What, what's happening to them is, is rightly so. And, uh, you know, at the beginning of the season, I said that Juve's midfield was not good enough. And I said, prove me wrong. And I, I don't think that they have. And, and Matuidi, I don't think I brought up Matuidi. The problem with this is, and and um, is you have Pjanic, Matuidi, and Emerchan, right? Or or Pjanic, Matuidi, Kedira. There's no dynamic in that midfield. There's nothing. You can't play with Matuidi and Kedira, or Matuidi and Emerchan, or at least you can't do that for a Champions League. Maybe you could get away with it in Serie A, but you're not going to get away with it in Champions League, especially against a team like Atletico Madrid, who is condensed. Those guys are tightly packed. And that's why, again, everybody keeps messaging me that I'm being too harsh on this Juve. And I don't think I am. This Juve is built for a Champions League. And, uh, and you know, people keep telling me, yeah, but look, last year Juventus were able to come back against Real Madrid. Yeah, but Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid are two different teams. Real Madrid goes out a match and they want to attack. They're at home. They're not going to sit back. Atletico are going to sit back. They love this. Simeone is a guy. He's going to have a fire under these guys' asses. Sorry if I can't curse, but he's going to. It's not the same as Real Madrid. And and on top of that, the away goal is completely different. Atletico get one goal, and not only do Juventus have to score two to tie it out from last leg, they have to score four. So I think that um, it's a very, very, very difficult situation. And without that proper midfield, it's always going to be a hiccup for Juve. I think it's really crazy that Juventus have relied on a guy like Bentancur who's 20 or going on 21 
to play like I remember he got injured at some point in the season and it was one of those things where you know when a young player gets injured and you, you don't really see them in the second half of the season as soon as he got fit again he was straight back into that Juve, Juve lineup and that really surprised me considering you know you get a um, Emre Chan on a free and maybe he hasn't performed but it, it, it's it looks like to me that Allegri doesn't really trust many of the guys in that midfield and I think you're right Marco um, I'm not sure you're being too harsh on them because that has been the main area that they've struggled uh, maria had another question and this was about the national team and mancini's use of chiesa and whether or not he should play kind of further forward and uh and just hit the use of him as a player in the national team in general well, what are your thoughts on uh on on him in the national team and then on the national team in, in general um yeah no federico chiesa is one of those guys that i really like and um i've re- i i don't like to hype up youngsters uh, because it's just, it's not my thing. Like, you know, I really like a player to develop and uh, not put like too hard of a name on him. But um, the qualities that I'll say Chiesa has are the important qualities for the Italian national team. And talent is a very important aspect of the game, obviously. Chiesa has the talent. You know, he's got the skill, which Italy 100% lack, especially in attack. And we've seen that constantly. But on top of that, you also have to have hunger, right? There's three aspects to a player. Talent, hunger, and I'll get to the third one. The hunger, Chiesa definitely has. You see it in his eyes. Um, he's a leader, uh, leader for, for Fiorentina, captains them on a lot of occasions. But that third quality is key. And to me, that's a make or break if you're going to be a great player or if you're going to be a good player. And there's nothing wrong with both of them, right? But that third quality is confidence. Now, I keep relating when when I watched Monaco and Mbappe play and against Juventus. Um, and I never saw Mbappe play before, but I, I got to watch him play that game. And a lot of people were hyping him up. And again, like I said, I'm not on that hype train. And then I watched him and I said, this is why play, people love Mbappe. Because he was going against Barzai, Bonucci, Chiellini in the back, some of the best defenders. And he was not scared to take him on. Again, you could have the talent but you need to have the confidence to utilize that talent. And Chiesa has the confidence. He's not scared to take on his man. He has a lot of ways that he needs to clean up his game. And I'm not saying he's going to become a top, top player, but I think that he's showing us that he has the mold to become that. And if he reaches his potential, he definitely has the ability to do that. Yeah, he's uh, certainly a player that's interested uh, Juventus that we've been just talking about for, for quite a while, but starting to attract a lot more Premier League interest. Uh, Matt, you're you're very fond of him as well, aren't you? Absolutely. Uh, you know, Marco did a great job of, of kind of covering what type of player he is, what, uh, what his profile is, what ultimately he brings to the pitch, Fiorentina and obviously the national team, which because uh, obviously he does have a, a big role uh, in the national team under Mancini. But what, I think the, one of the biggest things that he brings to this attack, which again, it still has to be sorted out in certain things, uh, in certain uh, degrees, more more or less with the striker situation. I think that's uh, the big, the biggest key here, the biggest concern for uh, the national team and the fans. But he brings that directness. Again, you can kind of you know, compound what Marco said about his confidence, but he also has that directness um, and that skill, that flair, that ability to take guys on. He's not afraid of going into a battle against a more veteran type player or a player that maybe has a bigger a bigger name behind him. I think that's the one of the biggest things I'm looking forward to with seeing Chiesa get those regular opportunities and minutes with the national team. And you can make the same thing with, again with Zaniolo. 
it's not so much to the point where people have said, because I think there's a lot of people who have made this point where saying, well, you know, this player's too young for the national battalion national team. It's a heavy shirt. There's a lot of pressure. They need uh, more um, experienced players. If you look at all the top nations and the, and the nations that are consistently competing in these major tournaments, they all ha- are not afraid to play and give minutes to youth. We see it time and time again. Look at teams like look at like teams like France. Look at Germany. They don't they don't have a problem giving a 19, 20 year old player big responsibilities, giving them the spotlight and saying, We trust you, go out and do your thing. And I think again, I'm hoping that Mancini will give that trust and kind of that 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 free reign for guys like Zaniolo, Chiesa, maybe even Cutrone somewhere soon down the line to show show the world what they're capable of doing. We see it time and time again with Fiorentina, again, as Marco alluded to, wearing the armband so he could take on that responsibility. And that's a heavy armband because obviously we all know uh, who previously wore that for Fiorentina, Davide Astori, of course, a, a, a guy that uh, did it with such uh, you know, class, uh, character, and wore it with such pride. For him to do that and to... Uh, compete and to produce and get the goals, the assist. And he has those certain moments where, again, he's one of those players that I look at when he gets on the ball, you kind of want to kind of lean it a little closer to see what he's going to do next. And the Italian national team and Calcio, for that matter, doesn't really have that many of them. But that's what sets him apart from the rest of the guys is that when he gets on the ball, you're kind of saying, oh, Chiesa has the opportunity to unlock a game with a, you know, a solo effort, you know, a, a good dribble across into the box and a setting up someone else. I think those are the certain things that he does bring to his game. Everyone will look at his goals and assists, and he's still a young player. Those are areas of his game that I do think will improve. But there are some elements of his game that when you look at and you're saying this kid has it, I don't know what it is right now because he's still very young and we haven't seen him get those regular minutes with the national team, but he has that in factor about him. The only thing is he has to stay humble, again, as Marco just said, hungry, confident. If he can continuously does continuously do uh, can do that and Mancini gives him the minutes to show it, I think uh, the Italian national team has someone special here. Do you guys think he could be a massive Italian export into, say, the Premier League? Do you think it could happen this summer? I mean, there's been reported inter- interest uh, from Chelsea previously, having, you know, Conte and Sarri as two uh, successive Italian managers. And also Manchester City has uh, have been kind of reportedly very interested in him. And uh, I think Guardiola's a fan. Do you think there's a chance he could go to the Premier League? Or is it more likely that Juve do that old thing where they snap up a, 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 a player doing really well in Serie A? And in a similar fashion they did with the Bernadeschi. Yeah, I think I think that it's definitely more likely that he stays in Italy. And I really would find it hard to see a scenario where he went to the Premier League just because, again, like you said, uh, Marotta, who was Juventus's director and now he's at Inter, he once famously said that um, an Italian player is very important for an Italian team because there's, there's a, a huge connection to the shirt. And when you can find an Italian player, you need to do what you can to get him. So I think that, that that shows the philosophy that Juventus have and also Inter have right now. And when you've got a guy that that they say the, the qualities are there for a guy like Federico Chiesa, I think that they're willing to spend the extra money to get it done. Um, and I think we saw that with Juventus with Bernadeschi. Whether Juve get him or Inter get him or, or whoever, uh, it's hard to see any other clubs, though. That's the only thing is is that price tag that that's held over his head. If they were gonna, if this was last year where they wanted forty million, definitely. But the only scenario that I see it is that he goes out of budget for Juve or for an Inter, where they're like, listen, it's not worth it at eighty million. You know, 
No, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think the, the, the biggest thing if you're looking at for, um, you know, from Fiorentina's perspective, because obviously when you have a, a crown jewel type talent like this, uh, born and bred, the similar case what they have with Bernadeschi, you're not going to let him go for, for peanuts. You're not going to let him go without getting top dollar because obviously, you know, you have to feel the wrath of the ultras, the fans for saying you're just sold our, our cap, a guy who wears the armband for us, a guy who is very young, a guy we can build around and you're selling him for uh, below grade uh, value on the market if the only way i can see him actually getting sold outside of italy is if again someone comes in with an over the moon over the top offer both transfer fee and in um, what they're going to offer him in wages obviously we all know what the premier league can do in that regard they they can pay any player they want top dollar they can match anyone's wages and uh, exceed them but I, for me, again, would agree with Marco. Is that I think he he's a, he's a he fits so much the mold of an Italian uh, a Serie A player, and I think for the for the future of the national team, I think uh, most people would want to want to keep him here. Now, whether or not Juve are the only club to do that, uh, it remains to be seen. I think if you look at what Inter are are, comp- are trying to accomplish moving forward, is they have some moving parts here, right? If they are able to uh, still maintain that top four finish, but they also wind up selling a guy like Mauro Icardi. They can open up the checkbook for a guy like Chiesa, a young player who will uh, immediately come in, will make Inter a ton better, will be able to uh, pretty much replace and uh, improve upon uh, by a wide margin over Cantareva. Now you look at some of the pieces there, Politano, you have Perisic, you have Keita Balde, you have Chiesa. That's in a team that is built to compete and compete for a very long time. So I think there's going to be a lot of suitors for Chiesa. There's no doubt about it. It's just going to be a matter of which clubs are willing to kind of come across with that big fee. And obviously, you all know that Juve is is right now uh, the pinnacle of Italian football. But I wouldn't be surprised to see a team like Milan, right, where they – People are looking at Milan's project as being so ambitious. And with the guys they're bringing in, Paqueta, Piontek, and it, with a compounded with the top four finish if they're able to do it, Milan's history, that badge, that playing in the San Siro, that still has so much value despite maybe their recent struggles of the past. So I think, again, there's going to be tons of suitors for Kies, and it just goes to show you um, – it just kind of just goes to show you how much of an improvement he's made from year to year to get that attraction, to get that – uh, interest from uh, domestically and uh, abroad clubs. Yeah, he certainly has many suitors. And if Fiorentina uh, want to cash in, and obviously if he wants to take that step up, I don't think they're going to be short of options. Um, moving out of the uh, Italian league and, and Calcio and the national team, and, and thank you very much for that player profile um, The market. It was really excellently explained, far better than me and Matt usually do. Uh, Joachim Lowe has kind of retired three players. Um, he he basically came out and said that um, uh, Boateng, Mats Hummels and Thomas Müller will no longer be playing for the uh, German national team. And I think there was a bit of backlash and Thomas Müller actually made a video saying, you know, I don't really know what's happened here. Um, I still want to play for Germany. This has been the coach's decision. Have you guys seen anything like this before? Isn't it kind of crazy? Yeah, it, oh, it is. I, I looked at it. I was working, and I saw it come across my feed, and I'm I'm looking at it, I'm questioning, saying, "Wait a second. I looked at the numbers. I looked at how big of a role each of these members played in their uh, their World Cup victory, and I'm thinking they have a lot more to give. But I think it's more it's more so not a reflection on what those types of players are and what they can bring. It's more of a reflection on how much depth and, and strength and numbers that German football has. If you look at all the, the depth they have in the Bundesliga and, and playing abroad, 
they have guys that come in year in and year out in, in, in numbers where you look at them and you're saying, Germany will have no problem replacing a Thomas Müller, a Boateng, uh, uh, Mats Hummels. Yes, we all know how important they are, but when you start getting to the, the, the shelf life of a, a national team player, is much different than it is for, for playing for club. We saw guys that retire early for the Italian national team who went on to play another seven, eight, nine, ten years after uh, they hung it up for the national team. Obviously, Totti was one of them. He quit at the, after the 20, uh, 2006 World Cup. He wound up playing another 12 years or 11 years. So uh, I think, again, that's the kind of the toughest thing to do is that with the national team, it's more about um, – building that nucleus, building that next wave of uh, uh, that next group that can kind of usher in a new era. And obviously, we know, Spain have done a great job of doing so. They won three major tournaments in a row. Um, and, you know, you look at the the model that's being laid out by a Germany, by Spain, Germany are going to have no problem in replacing these guys. I, the only thing is off the back of a early exit at the World Cup, I think now you can probably agree with him the fact that maybe now is the time to make that switch because you know we saw how detrimental it could be for a national team to kind of cling on to an old guard a little bit too long we saw it at the 2010 world cup with italy right failed to make it out of their group so i, I think again at, at 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 first glance you're looking at and you're thinking thomas muller boateng hummels i mean these are three pillars for the national team right but i think if you really kind of you know dig a little bit deeper you'll find that german football is equipped to move on from these guys and bring in fresher legs fresher players and uh you know kind of keep the torch moving yeah i think if you consider meza Erzl retired as well um during the summer these three guys have been stalwarts in, in that German national team starting 11. Especially Thomas Muller, he looked like he was probably going to go on if he played in the next World Cup and, and break that goal-scoring record uh, held by Closer. It is strange to me to see a coach come out and say these guys aren't playing anymore. And it looks like... Well, I don't know. It, it, did it feel like to you, Marco, that Thomas Muller didn't know about it? Or uh, it was just really strange. To tell you the truth, um, I, I'm so uh, I'm not well versed outside of uh, of Serie A too much, so I don't want to overstep where where I don't know. And I, I didn't I didn't completely hear this um, this situation that you guys were talking about. So I'm I'm learning a little bit as you guys talk. So what was the full situation? <laughs> So basically, uh, Joachim Lowe, Germany national manager, of course, came out and said that Jerome Boateng, Mats Hummels and Thomas Muller wouldn't be playing for the national team anymore. They wouldn't be be uh, called up for any lo- early longer um, as he wants a new Germany, I quote, um, which is uh, interesting. Uh, but it, it's, I think it's just kind of the manner in which it's happened, right? Uh, it's um, It's really strange to me to see a coach come out and say, I don't want these guys any longer. Um, and for them, especially Thomas Miller, who came out and had like a, a long Instagram video, who basically came out and said, the more I think about this, the more angry I get about it. Um, he said, me, Matt and Jerome can still play at the top level. And, you know, they're still performing to some extent relatively well at Bayern Munich. It, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting one. And it's, um, I don't know, especially considering how much speculation there is about Joachim Lowe's future. I think it's it's certainly a situation that's very unique and I haven't seen before. I think that's you. I think you touched on it. And I think you raised a good point there. Is you know what's Joachim Lowe's future, right? Because you know obviously you know he had such a great run with Germany, he won the World Cup, but they bowed out um, you know, as the defending champions in the group stage. So you wonder if 
low is gone with you know maybe after the euro let's call it they bring in a new a new manager and that manager kind of wants to give those guys another shot maybe not Boateng so much or Hummels but maybe Thomas Muller who it's a little bit different for um, a forward a striker type player because I think defensively uh, you know look at Boateng you look at Hummels they have some injury injury history they are getting on that that later um, you know that the, the worser side of 30 um, as well so it could be more so that he those three guys don't have a spot in his Germany moving forward. But if, again, if whatever Jurgi Lowe's future holds, maybe they still have an opening in to kind of get those, uh, you know, as, as you alluded to, uh, you know, to get those extra minutes to get that opportunity once again. It's just, again, I think it just goes to show you that, you know, when you get, when you have the, um, the, the balls, so to speak, to part with those three type players who were fundamental, that are key in winning the World Cup, and they still have so so much to give, in my opinion, for the national team at least. And you're able to say, no, we don't ha- we don't see them as a, as a part of the new Germany. It just again, it's it's Germany's strength in numbers, and that's something that you really have to look at and say they can afford to do that because not many other nations would have the uh, the the uh, confidence to say I'm going to cast those guys away and move along with a bigger group. Because if you look at the, again the talent they have that comes in year in and year out. They don't have any issues replacing attacking players, midfield players. When you can cast aside a guy like Matsudo still, Thomas Muller, who can possibly be the all-time score, uh, top scorer in the World Cup, you better be damn sure that you have guys that can fill in right away and maybe uh, exceed their production and their expectations. So uh, it's going to be obviously you know interesting to watch how that you know kind of plays out for them. Um, and really what the backlash is of that, because obviously there's many core members of that, uh, you know, that 2014 uh, uh, team that are very supportive of the players like, you know, Muller, uh, Hummels, and Boateng that may be a little bit more vocal. And who knows, maybe Thomas Muller's, I mean, not Thomas Muller, excuse me, Manuel Neuer's spot is up for grabs. Wait, well, Mark andre Ter Stegen being such a big time uh, goalkeeper for Barcelona. Yeah, I, I think they're in a definite transitional phase, whether or not Lowe takes on the next four, uh, two to three tournaments. I think it'll be there, obviously, for the Euros, but the next two to three will be quite interesting. Uh, the, the last thing we're going to talk about, gents, is handballs. Does anyone know the handball rule anymore? I feel like I feel like every day that goes by, I know less and less about football because <laughs> there's always something that somebody comes up with, like, no, that's not how it is, and then you look it up and it's something different. It's it's too 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 confusing and and too aren't they changing it now? Isn't it like going to be like if the ball is going in, doesn't matter the intention? Yeah, they've they've apparently already changed it. Basically, the the rule change used to be by the law, um, it has to be deliberate handball for it to be handball. But obviously, you know that was never really played to. You know, we've seen players handball the ball without it being deliberate, and it still become being a penalty. Um. But now, if the ball is kind of traveling on target or towards goal, and it's not deliberate, a ref can still deem it a handball. But what is what does not deliberate mean? Does if it's still not by if the ball's by the person's side, does that count? Uh, you know, I think these are the blurred lines. Lines, right? I mean, you sound confused. I'm very confused. Matt, are you confused? Yeah, it's it's, it's a really strange one because I looked at you know the, the instance uh, or this the situation a couple weeks ago with Inter against Fiorentina. Where it looked, oh it looked God. to clearly hit, you know. And I'm a, listen. I'm a Milan fan. It worked out in my club's favor. They dropped points. But when you look at it, there's a wider problem or bigger problem to look at here because obviously this could happen to any club and, and really be a disadvantage to them. Uh, when you look at your, I looked at it at first glance. I'm like, there's no way this is going to be a penalty. It looked like it clearly hit his pectoral. 
muscle, whatever, his chest, whatever you want to call it, and kind of bounced down. But everyone was stunned. It's like, and then the same thing happened today um, in the Inter game versus Spal, where uh, that one was a little bit more, not deliberate, but a little bit more clear, in my opinion. It kind of came across his chest. He settled it with his right um, bicep, if you will, and it landed right at his feet. Then he scored a great goal. But um, yeah, it, it's very too... I think the handball thing, there's got to be, it's got to be definitive. It's got to be something that they can look at and yep. say that the rules have to be a little bit more cut and dry. It can't just be yep. uh, deliberate because no handball is deliberate. No one's deliberately trying to obstruct the ball's path and put themselves in a position where they're going to cost their team a goal and possibly even a victory or, or a draw. So the whole, like it's deliberate or not deliberate. It's there's handballs that are obviously most likely not deliberate that still get called anyway. And then there's some that are really blatant. Like the guy puts their arm up in the air in a really unnatural position, you know, when you're jumping, but I, I joke and I look at him saying, if this is a handball, you might as well just cut this guy's arms off at the shoulders because he's tucked in, his hands are behind his back. Maybe that's the way that these defenders have to look. But then again, you know, when you're jumping for a ball or jumping for a header, no one jumps with their hands behind their back. It's you using your arms as leverage, your legs as leverage to get up and to challenge for a ball in the air. So there's got to be a little bit more clear uh, clarity with the handball rule. And obviously I'm hoping that it, it gets cleared up in time. But Serie A has been, uh, you know, is come under, you know, uh, intense scrutiny for the way that everything happened with VAR and officiating and handball rule. And um, I, I, it's going to be fascinating to watch it all play out next year when uh, the Premier League gets it, because obviously it's going to be front and center for everyone to see. And it's going to be even uh, more magnified and more closely looked at. I agree. I agree. And, I agree. and the last thing I would say is you need balance. You, your hands are used as balance in football. Like if anybody played football, you know how important it is. And then there's, oh, how close was he to the ball? If the guy's two feet away from you and he hits it, no, it's too close. Then, oh, what's this guy's intention? I, I got to read his mind. Like, yo, it's too confusing. It's very simple. And there needs to be consistency. Just like you said with the Inter Fiorentina one. By the way, I was at an Inter club party over here in New Jersey, Matt. And uh, the, I was there. When I was watching the game on my phone. You should have seen. It. it was a whole room of Inter fans, like 450 people. And everyone was losing their mind. So it was, it was mad. Uh, but same thing with Juventus against Napoli. You know, very similar with Alexandro. Hits off his chest and then hits his... It's too confusing. You got to make it clear. And then on top of that, you got to be consistent. Because, Matt, you know, in Serie A this year, at least, I can only speak for Serie A, there hasn't been enough consistency. You're going to call this? Okay, then you got to call that. What's the rule? Where are we going? You know, uh, so I don't understand it, but... And and that the thing that always kind of frustrated me too is in sports, we see a lot in American football and... Uh, major major league baseball and then nba is makeup calls i think that's kind of the one of the biggest frustrating things because you're trying to correct a mistake with another mistake that could be even less blatant and uh, way way incorrect right how many times have we seen it well that was a wrong call so now we got to give them a makeup no no so now you're gonna make up a a, a ghost foul that just doesn't exist but because you messed up the first one now you got to correct it with like two wrongs don't make a right and that's kind of what frustrates me as someone uh, as as a fan of football first and foremost because you have all this technology that we're trying to implement you know you have the goal line technology we have so many people looking at the uh, uh, with a clear view of the match and even we get those situations where you know you they do the blind checks of, of var and sometimes they don't even go to var if you have the technology and there's no, no uh, limitations on how much you use that technology. Just go to VAR because there's so much hanging in the balance in these games. 
And I, 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 we're going to see it. I, I know we're going to see it in the Champions League moving forward um, because obviously it just started in the, in the knockout stage around a 16. But some team is going to – I mean, you've already seen it, right? PSG Manchester United. So there's already going to be tons of controversy. When you start adding technology and you start adding uh, more cameras and more things to the game, now it, it opens up the conversation for more criticism and more doubt as to whether or not this is the type of technology, this is the right way to go about getting the, cor- uh, the calls correct. So that's that's what I wanted to raise, right? This has obviously become very mainstream because of the high-profile game between PSG and Manchester United. What did you guys think of that incident, Matt and Marco? Did you think it was a handball? Um, I looked at it at, at first glance. It, it it happens so quick, right? You think like a player goes up, you know, how many times a ball, uh, you know, gets launched on net, just kind of a 50-50 shot. Uh, if it goes above, most of the time it'll go into the second second row. But that looked like one of those cases where the defender pretty much was kind of jumping just to kind of block it, you know, turn his back towards the, the shot. And his arm wound up being somewhat in a, a little bit unnatural of a position. Oh, handball. Like, that's not deliberate. There's no way that's deliberate. Look at the time. Look at the time that the, the incident happened. You really think a PSG player is deliberately trying to block the ball with his arm while he's in the penalty area and give Manchester United the, penal, uh, the, uh, the penalty opportunity to move on. That's not deliberate. There's just no way. That's the that's the, the the biggest thing for me is there's that gray area where you have VAR, you have the technology, you have everyone looking at the play, but the human element is going to be different for everybody. There's going to be saying that's intentional, that's not intentional. I can't change, I can't, I can change it. If it takes you multiple minutes, three, four minutes on end to try and find something wrong with the initial call, then yeah, you'll probably find something. But if it takes you that long to find something and you're still looking, 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 and you don't find anything definitive, you can't change the call. You just can't do it. You know, that's 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 always been my opinion. Like if you're going to be – if you see something happen and you're like, okay, we got that wrong. Let's look at far. And it takes like 30, 40 seconds. They look at it. They point it. Okay, I'm fine with that because you want to move the game along. You want to keep the action going. But when it takes multiple minutes to – try to find something you'll always find something i even saw a perfect example with the um the penalty thing that happened with uh not the penalty the the, the overhead kick that piontek did yesterday where people were saying oh well he um he he landed on this the uh the defender like the cable defender that's so that therefore that rest that sequence should have been played out if you look at the re a close close replay slowed down magnified the, the guy's elbow hit the ball piontek didn't touch it of course, you'll find certain things after the fact, but if it's not deliberate, if it's not blatant, if it's not so cut and dry, I've never been under the impression of really trying to find something that may not be there. Like if you're going to try to force, uh, oh, you know, what, I'm going to force, this looks like, yes, let's do this. Then that's where you get, because you're kind of in between, you're torn on certain things versus saying, no, I made it wrong. I got, I got the wrong call. I got the right call. That's kind of been my way of thinking, but I think that there's got to be a more mainstream, a more uh, you, a, a rule book and the rules for VAR and the technology that we have to be used and implemented in unison so that it's the same across all the leagues, not different because we see the the, the, the calls go differing, uh, that the rules and the way the calls are implemented or, or made, should I say, uh, differing between domestic and you know international competitions. It's got to be the same thing across the board. No, uh, again, I, I I was watching that the Ajax game. I did see, I saw the first replay, and I, I thought it was, I thought it was the correct call. But again, I didn't see it clearly enough where I didn't go back and look at it. But I reference the Roma game, uh, Roma Porto, who to me, you know, if you give Porto that penalty kick, um, the one on Sheik to not even go and check it is a very frustrating thing. 
And to me, I mean, I, that was a penalty for Sheik. If you're gonna if you're gonna call a light call, um, then then it has to be, and and you at least have to go and check. And I think that's one of the most frustrating things in in football right now is if you have the VAR, you know, you have to use it. And you know, in the 95th minute on the last play of the game, you're gonna say you're not gonna waste time to go and check what could be a potential uh, penalty kick to save a team from going out of the Champions League is is ridiculous to me. Uh, but yeah, other than that. I don't know. I guess we gotta we gotta brush up on our rules, boys. <laughs> I I definitely thought that was a penalty as well. In, in in you know extra time, he clips his heels. Whether it's intentional or not, I, I you can't say it's not a penalty. You look at that replay and there's contact. He trips him up. It's a it's a definite penalty in my eyes. But I guess that's where the guys up in the room just kind of decided for some crazy reason that it wasn't a penalty and to not even check. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's laughable really. Anyway. Anyway, anyway, on a more positive note, um, it's been awesome having you on, Marco. Uh, thank you so much for joining Matt and I. Uh, where can people find out more about you on Twitter and stuff? Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you guys for having me. Um, yeah, Italian Football TV everywhere um, and Instagram and, and on YouTube is uh, two of our biggest platforms. So, yeah, thank you guys for having me. Thank you for letting me talk about Serie A. And um, the last thing I'll say is that what we always say at, at, at IFTV is that, um, you know, if you watch another league, Give Serie A a chance because it's really exciting, especially for the third and fourth place this year. Super, super exciting. Whether Milan's going to take it, Inter, who's going to finish above who. And I know, Matt, now you're probably excited because there's a chance that you get second place. I was just with um, with Antonio from our podcast, and he's he's feeling very optimistic that second place is potential. So it's exciting. No, absolutely. Serie A has been uh... – I hold this near and dear to my heart, and it's only been getting better over the past couple of years. And of course, we have people like Marco, Michael Cantaris, and his entire uh, the entire IFTV crew to thank for what they're doing to further you know, uh, you know give content, deliver content to people who otherwise maybe don't know much about Serie A. And uh, again, they're doing a great job. So make sure you guys are following them on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and um, YouTube as well. And and Matt, where can uh, people find out more about you? Twitter at Matt underscore Santangelo uh, on my articles, gifts, you know, my poor attempts most of the time at banter. Uh, yeah, all on Twitter. Uh, and you can find me at Pet Berisha, P E T B E R I S H A. You can find us at State of Play Pod. And Matt, you actually uh, submitted us to uh, some sort of award, didn't you? Why don't you uh, spill the beans? Yeah, so we have the uh, the FBAs uh, coming up, I think, in the first week of April. Uh, we have nominated ourselves, well, I have uh, thrown ourselves into the, uh, the uh, contest for Best New Creator. So, guys, if you guys want to support us, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll reshare the link on my personal account or I'll share it on the, uh, the State of Play pod as well. So we appreciate any support you guys can give us. And, um, yeah, I don't know if IFTV has entered anything yet, but I definitely recommend if you haven't, Make sure you guys do, um, and uh, we'll be more than happy to support you guys. Um, yeah, I'm going to vote for you guys. I didn't, I didn't even know about this, but you got my vote. I mean, I didn't even know about it until <laughs> Matt posted on Twitter, so, you know. <laughs> this guy, Matt. Um, <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening, and if you're on your commute, uh, I hope it's it's whisked by with the, you know, the dulcet tones of Marco, Matt, and, and the duller tones of myself. Uh, and if you're doing whatever you're doing, if you're not commuting, then uh, have a great day. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.